0: Chapter 14 is the most famous of the three chapters of what Samuel is preaching, 13, 14, 15. It's here that we see the two famous prophecies, the birth and death of Jesus. In verse one, it's coming from Samuel, the Lamanite. We've gone from A to the, he did prophesy a great many more things which cannot be written. Oh, I'd love to have that list, but here's the big one. Behold, he said unto them, behold, I given unto you a sign. For five years more cometh, and behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. For behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was day. There shall be one day and a night and a day as if it were one day and there were no night and this shall be unto you for a sign. This is going to be so blatantly obvious, there's no way of explaining it away because you'll see the rising of the sun and also its setting. You'll know that this time is passing. You won't be hitting your watch and seeing if it's still ticking. You're not going to shake the sundial and see if it's broken. No, you'll see the cycle. It's just never going to get dark. You'll know of a surety that there's two days and a night. Nevertheless, the night shall not be darkened and it shall be the night before he is born. Beyond that, verse five, there shall a new star arise. We can ask the wise men about that one. Such an one as ye never have beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. And then in six, that's not all. There shall be many signs and wonders in heaven to the point that you shall be amazed and wonder and fall to the earth, all in hopes of verse eight happening, that whosoever shall believe on the Son of God the same shall have everlasting life. He's coming. That's why we want to repent. That's why we can repent. He's coming. And unlike so many other prophecies that are less specific, one thing that sets Samuel apart is just how clear these prophecies are. This is no vague fortune cookie. This is five years from now. There's a date the vast majority of you will be around to see this take place. Time will have a chance to vindicate the prophet. We're going to take this long history that we, you described back in chapter 13. Oh, if only we'd lived back in the olden days, we would have known that we were among prophets. No, you wouldn't. It's only in retrospect, only now that your hindsight is 2020, that you see them for who they really are, true messengers of the Lord. Well, let's condense it and give it five years, shall we? And some of you will be able to decide right now, in advance, will I have faith in this prophet? Will I accept his prophecy before it becomes so obvious that I cannot disbelieve? Or will I only believe once there's proof? And that perfect knowledge destroys the chance that I once had to develop and to exercise faith. Well, not only is this prophecy time-specific and very clear, it's unimaginably miraculous. Wait, a night with no darkness? And yet that seems so perfectly fitting because who is coming that night? The light of the world. With him here, there's no need for any other source of illumination. It's like what John saw in the celestial city in the book of Revelation. No sun, no moon, no stars, because no need of them. You have the light of the world among you. Or this new star appearing. Now take a look at the night sky. Especially if there's no light pollution. And would you even be able to tell if there was a new star? (laughs) One million and one, one million and two. Oh wait, there's a million and third. No, I'd have no idea. Unless that star was so different that it would shock me into recognition. I'm not going to count them all and see that we're up one since last night. But if this is something like I've never seen before. That's what he says in five. And that's Jesus also, not just one more Palestinian Jew, not even just one more itinerant preacher, not even one more incredibly wise human moralist. No, this is the son of the almighty God, the only begotten of the father in the flesh. This is the word made flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is a being unlike any I have ever beheld. A light that shines in darkness, that eclipses the night itself. This is Jesus, and he's coming. If I believe on him, everlasting life is mine. But believe before disbelief becomes impossible. Elder Maxwell used to talk about that, that choose to kneel now because someday when every knee shall bend and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, in that day when it's impossible to disbelieve, your kneeling posture won't mean so much. Do it now, in advance. Exercise faith in him and let it be faith unto repentance. After all, that is Samuel's message, right? Even as he's talking about these incredible signs and wonders in heaven, he's still trying to eliminate sin here on earth. So in 11, he gets back to the subject at hand. You'll hear my words. For this intent have I come up upon the walls of this city. I'm trying to breach the barrier. I'm trying to get into you. So you might hear and know of the judgments of God, which do await you because of your iniquities, and also that ye might know the conditions of repentance. Repentance. That was Alma's phrase, right? In fact, lots of people in the Book of Mormon have used that phrase, that redemption comes with conditions, and those conditions are repentance, the conditions of repentance. That's why Jesus is coming. That's why we need a light to banish the darkness. That's why we need a star unlike anything you've ever seen before. It's only through him that the conditions of repentance become effectual. See, 12, I've come up that you might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and that you might know of the signs of his coming. That's what I want you to know. He's the one that will facilitate these conditions of repentance. Remember back in chapter 13, verse 29, when he asks, how long will you choose darkness rather than light? Well, Jesus is going to come and force the question upon you in five years. Because there will be a night where you literally cannot choose darkness. There'll be no darkness to choose. It'll be gone. Only light. What I'm asking you to do is to choose light in advance. Don't wait for the night where you literally cannot choose darkness. Where light is your only option. Right now you are caught between the two. You're on a wall of your own. Which side are you going to come down to? To this point, you've chosen the side of darkness. I'm up on the wall trying to convince you to come out into His marvelous light. Repent of your sins. Because in 13, if you believe on His name, now in advance, you will repent of all your sins, now in advance, that thereby ye may have a remission of those sins through His merits. Notice that's what brings us forgiveness. It's not our repentance. It's his redemption. Our repentance is just one of the conditions that he places on us accepting, receiving his redemption. It's his merits. I don't know if it can be put better than in the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, to wean us off this false sense of self-sufficiency, thinking that it, well, it was my repentance that brought forgiveness. No, no, no. It was my repentance that allowed the Lord to intercede and offer his merits in my behalf. Think of the lines in verse two of that hymn. Not the labors of my hands can fill all the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It's what Lehi said to Jacob centuries ago. No flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, as that same word that Samuel uses, and mercy and grace of the holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh. He's our only hope. He is the condition of repentance. No wonder Samuel is prophesying more specifically of him now. Now, if this first half of chapter 14 was Samuel's prophecy of the signs regarding Jesus' birth, then the second half of this chapter are the signs regarding Jesus' death. Verse 14, again, another sign I give unto you, yea, a sign of his death. For behold, he surely must die, that salvation may come. That's part of the conditions as well. Yea, it behooveth him, and becometh expedient that he dieth, to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. Now here, Samuel's going to teach some doctrine that we saw earlier from Alma, as well as his great mission companion, Amulek, as they tag team in Ammonihah, again, very similar context, a wicked city that he's crying repentance to, and talk about how the atonement of Jesus Christ overcomes both sin and death that was brought upon humanity because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And just like they did, although I would give Samuel credit that is even more clear here, that if resurrection overcomes physical death and if judgment brings us back into the presence of God and thus overcomes spiritual death, well, now it's on us. And there is the potential of suffering what Samuel will call a second spiritual death. And this time it's on us and not on Adam. A universal fall was overcome by a universal redemption insofar that we all get our bodies back, resurrection, and all come back into God's presence, judgment. But what degree of glory to which we'll be resurrected? That's on us. And whether or not we'll be able to stay in God's presence or we'll yet suffer a second spiritual death, a second separation from his presence, that is all based on our own choices in life. You get a sense of that starting in 16. Yea, behold, this death bringeth to pass the resurrection. So temporal death overcome and redeemeth all mankind from the first death, that is, that spiritual death, the separation from God. For all mankind, by the fall of Adam, being cut off from the presence of the Lord, are considered as dead, both as to things temporal and to things spiritual. Separation of body and spirit, there's the temporal death. Separation of God and humanity, there's the spiritual death. But behold, 17, the resurrection of Christ redeemeth mankind. Yea, even all mankind. Here's the universality of it all. And bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve, you're free to leave the stand. You're off the hook. All of your children are back now. And then in 18, it bringeth to pass the condition of repentance whosoever repenteth, the same is not hewn down and cast into the fire. They're not asked to leave. They're not cursed, if we want to use that trigger word again. On the other hand, whosoever repenteth not is hewn down and cast into the fire. They are separated from God. There cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death, for they are cut off again as to things pertaining to righteousness. There's the curse all over again. Therefore, verse 19, repent ye, repent ye. It's the entire reason I keep crying repentance all these chapters. Lest by knowing these things and not doing them, ye shall suffer yourselves to come under condemnation and ye are brought down unto this second death. I'm sorry, well, not sorry, that I cannot leave you sinning in ignorance. You have to know these things so that you can do them. Isn't that King Benjamin's message at the end? If you believe these things, see that ye do them. Now that you know it's on you, the ball's in your court, and you've got to repent. Those are the conditions upon which your overcoming of spiritual death permanently will be assured you. Otherwise, you will leave God again. And this time, there's no Adam and Eve to shake your fist at. Theirs was a fortunate fall because it ushered in a chance for mortal probation slash preparation Well, if you wasted the days of your preparation, then there's no fortunate in your fault. So how do we overcome it? Verse 20, the sign of his death. Behold, in that day that he shall suffer death, because it's his death, even more than his birth that saves us. Remember, we saw that back in chapter 13. He shall suffer many things, Gethsemane, and shall be slain for his people, Calvary. So here's the sign of his death. In that day that he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you. The moon and the stars also, there shall be no light upon the face of this land, even from the time that he shall suffer death for the space of three days to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. This is such a perfect antithesis of what we saw regarding his birth light so intense that darkness is not an option well now an unavoidable darkness such that light cannot be found anywhere you have extinguished the light of the world and as we'll see later in third nephi without his light nothing can illuminate us you nephites who are choosing darkness rather than light there are consequences for extinguishing the light of the world. Beyond that darkness, verse 21, at the time that he shall yield up the ghost, there will be thunderings, lightnings for the space of many hours. The earth shall shake and tremble. This is so similar to what John describes in the book of Revelation regarding the second coming. Again, there is so much about the first that is preview of the second. From 21 through 24, he describes these natural disasters, this great destruction. Isn't that what Nephi prophesied of himself years, Mm -hmm. centuries ago? that there will be so much destruction around the world so that the kings on the isles of the sea will be wrought upon to exclaim, the God of nature suffers. Such that both creator and creation seem to be suffering in unison. In verse 25, here is what must have been added after the Lord looked through Nephi's scriptures. Many graves shall be opened And shall yield up many of their dead. Many saints shall appear unto many." These are details that Alma dreamed of knowing when he was teaching Corianton about the resurrection back in Alma chapter 41, right? Some mysteries that he had to forbear about because he didn't know yet, though some of his guesses evidently proved correct. Well, he concludes this prophecy of the signs accompanying the death of Jesus. But one of the things I love about chapter 14 is that we get to see in kind of bigger picture What signs are meant for to begin with? We are living in a day that is anticipating the signs of the times. And indeed, not just anticipating, living through some of them. And what are those signs for? Go back to verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12. We read the beginning, but look at the last line. Why are all these signs given? That ye might know of the signs of his coming. Here's why. To the intent that ye might believe on his name. I'm trying to fortify your faith. I'm trying to give you a reason for the hope that is in you. It's for the intent that we believe. He actually says that again in chapter 16, verse 5. Jump ahead to that. We've got a tag team here from Samuel to the prophet Nephi. But in 16.5, Nephi is telling them of things which must shortly come. He can do some prophesying of his own. That they might know and remember at the time of their coming, that they had been made known unto them beforehand. And here's why to the intent that they might believe. Anytime the Lord gives us a sign is to confirm our belief. Faith precedes the miracle. You receive no witness, no sign until after the trial of your faith, but it's there to confirm it. If you go back to chapter 14, look at the end of the chapter now. And after having discussed these two great signs, the birth and the death of Jesus, then in 28, he says this, the angel said unto me that many shall see greater things than these to the intent that they might believe. Again, that's the whole purpose. That these signs and these wonders should come to pass upon all the face of the land to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of men. We keep coming back to that. Will I believe now when there really is a wrestle with disbelief? Or will it come at a point when there is no cause for unbelief? there we start to see that signs have both a mercy and a justice element. Mercy, to confirm the faith of believers, just to show that it is no longer possible to disbelieve. There's no cause for it. That's what he explains in 29. This to the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved, and that whosoever will not believe, a righteous judgment might come upon them. There's the justice side right next to the mercy side. I love the way Samuel ends this chapter in 30 and 31. Now remember, remember, my brethren. I love that a Lamanite calls his wicked Nephite audience by that title, my brethren. That whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. You don't even have Adam and Eve to blame anymore. This is all you. And whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself as well. My wife always brings up that phrase that when we sin, we're only sinning against ourselves. These are self-inflicted wounds that we are causing. Reminds me of what Cecil B. DeMille said, the famous director of the original Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. He said, you cannot break the commandments. You can only break yourself against them. You do iniquity, you're doing it to yourself. You're bringing upon your own consequences. What's Tevye say? You spit in the air, it lands in your face. This is the law of the harvest. This is restoration like Alma taught his son. This is sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Behold, you are free. You're permitted to act for yourselves. God hath given you a knowledge and he hath made you free. Know this, that every soul is free, we sing in the hymn book, to choose his life and what he'll be. For this eternal truth is given that God will force no man to heaven. He can't. He won't. He will not drag you kicking and screaming into his kingdom. You choose. You're free. Free to repent or free to refuse. Verse 31, he hath given unto you that ye might know good from evil, one all essential part of agency. He hath given unto you that you might choose life or death, another essential element. And ye can do good and be restored unto that which is good. Again, that principle of restoration that Alma taught, or have that which is good restored unto you, or ye can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. But you're doing the restoration yourself. Those are all parts of the conditions of repentance as well. So do you get a sense of what signs are for? So you'll believe. There's no reason to disbelieve so that God can be both merciful and just all at the same time. You see, when it comes to even the signs of his second coming, the signs of the times that we're living through and anticipating yet, on the one hand, you get, no man knows the day nor the hour. On the other hand, you get signs of the times. It's like the Lord himself is trying to strike this balance of not knowing no man knows the day nor the hour. That way you have to continually repent and prepare, right? Probationary, preparatory state. But on the other hand, signs of the times to let you know that the day is fast approaching and you need to be up and doing. I won't give you the due date on this assignment or you'll just do it the night before, but I will give you all the help and all the warnings I can that the due date is creeping closer. Use your time well. And with that, we turn to the last chapter of Samuel's message. Now, for this one, it might best be introduced by a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 21. A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards, he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. And then the Lord's question, whether of them twain did the will of his father. So which of these two boys actually did what he was asked? The one that said yes and didn't do it, or the one that said no, but did? They answered correctly, and then Jesus said, verily I say unto you, the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. They have spent their lives saying no to my commandments, but they are repenting and beginning to do my will as opposed to those outwardly righteous, but inwardly prideful whited sepulchers that constantly say, oh, I'm here to do God's will, but never actually get around to doing it. Can you see Nephites and Lamanites superimposed over this parable? Lamanites historically saying, nope, I don't wanna follow God, but by Samuel's day saying, I'm gonna do it and doing it. Meanwhile, Nephites through most of their history Oh, of course I'll obey. But by this time, no longer doing so. It's a fascinating role reversal we see in Samuel's day between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And he's going to dwell on that in chapter 15. Remember, we saw that at the very beginning of this story in chapter 13, verse 1. Nephites in great wickedness, Lamanites in strict obedience, then remember just a few verses later when he starts speaking to them again and, and pokes the button, the hot topic again, behold, I Samuel, a Lamanite. I'm not going to let you get away with this or get away from this just because you're insiders and I'm an outsider. Well, here's a chance for the harlot and publican to preach repentance to the Pharisee and scribe. He says it most clearly in chapter 14, verse 10, where he says, now because I am a Lamanite and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, and because it was hard against you. Remember, you only want soft sayings, easy prophets. Because I was hard against you, you are angry with me. You do seek to destroy me. You've cast me out from among you. Now, it's hard to tell which of those two parts gets the emphasis in that verse. Are you mad because I'm telling you hard things? Or are you mad because I'm a Lamanite telling it to you. I'm sure they hate both the message and the messenger. But if these Nephites are anything like the Nephites back in Jacob's day, when he's crying repentance to a wicked multitude, there's a lot of racism here also. Back in Jacob's day, it was, you look down on the Lamanites because of the darkness of their skin. Well, their skin's going to be whiter than yours come judgment day. Now, again, there's all kinds of arguments and possibilities out there regarding Lamanites versus Nephites. The traditional interpretation, the most common approach is that there is some literal skin color difference between Nephites and Lamanites. Some argue for a more metaphorical reading of that, that it is more symbolic of darkness and light, righteousness and wickedness. And there's even one approach that takes this more in terms of ceremonial clothing and that which is light and that which is dark about skins that are used to cover their nakedness. That's an interesting interpretation as well. Whichever one you hold to, there is some kind of difference here. Now, racial differences are going to start to mean less and less because as we saw earlier, there are Nephites that are choosing to be called Lamanites. Just like we saw with like the anti-Nephi Lehi's, there are Lamanites choosing to associate with and be part of the Nephites. We'll see that even more clearly in third and fourth Nephi, where the differentiation between Nephites and Lamanites has nothing to do with lineage and everything to do with lifestyle, nothing to do with skin color or race and everything to do with connections with God and relationships with him. Where does that put Samuel in all of this? Honestly, it's a little hard to say, but what we can be assured of is there was at least some sense of outsiderhood, some sense of otherness, Why do we have to listen to you? And I think there's something powerful about having an outsider call out the insiders. Having the convert cry repentance to the lifelong members. Having those on the periphery come into Zarahemla, stand upon their wall and say, you have to cleanse the inner vessel. Will we take those kinds of calls to repentance seriously? Or do we dismiss their message because it's easy to dismiss the messenger? for one reason or another. Well, the way chapter 15 begins, he speaks in a way very reminiscent of what Jesus says when he's discussing signs of the times with his own apostles. He says, my beloved brethren, again, here's a Lamanite calling Nephites that. Back in the last chapter, it was my brethren. Now it's my beloved brethren. Even if you hate me for the color of my skin, or for my otherness, however it might be manifest, I love you which is why I'm coming to declare unto you repentance, that except ye shall repent, your houses shall be left unto you desolate. Again, your own children will become slippery and fall through your fingers. Verse two, except ye repent, your women shall have great cause to mourn in the day that they shall give suck. For ye shall attempt to flee, and there shall be no place for refuge. Woe unto them which are with child, for they shall be heavy and cannot flee therefore they shall be trodden down and shall be left to perish. Now, this is harsh. And it's hard to tell how much is literal and how much is symbolic. But to speak of nursing mothers, of pregnant women, and there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. You cannot flee because you're so heavy with child. You can't find a place of refuge because you're nursing. Now, if you're a literalist, You know how hard it is to do anything quickly when you have little children, pack for a trip. I mean, you can just go to the store to get some more milk and the car seat and the diaper bag, and it's intense. I remember those days. But metaphorically, when you have people that have not yet developed any kind of spiritual independence, they cannot yet stand on their own two feet, you're still trying to nurse them along or, or help bring to light their own spiritual strength. Well, there will come a time where you can no longer live on borrowed light. You can no longer be nursing. There comes a point where your faith must be fully formed. You see, it's interesting because on the one hand, where are the husbands in all of this? If I had a nursing wife, a pregnant wife, there's no way I abandoned them. It's women and children first, right? The captain will go down with the ship the last thing on earth, I would say, would be every man for himself. But there's an irony there because like I just said, there comes a point where you cannot be nursing off of my testimony or my faith. You have to have your own. We live in a world that preaches every man for himself in the wrong way and sometimes don't do enough in the church to preach every man for himself in the right way spiritual self-reliance will be key in the last days. Have we weaned ourselves off of other people's witness? Do we know for ourselves? Then in verse three and four, he really gets down to business comparing Nephites and Lamanites. This is what he's been leading to. Woe unto this people who are called the people of Nephi, except they shall repent. There's that phrase again. When they see all these signs and wonders which shall be shown unto them, for behold, they have been a chosen people of the Lord. You're the son that said yes all those years. Yea, the people of Nephi hath he loved and also hath he chastened them. Yea, in the days of their iniquities hath he chastened them because he loveth them. Remember, destruction is for your sake to try to wake you up to repentance. But then in verse four, behold, my brethren, the Lamanites hath he hated because their deeds have been evil continually. Now, that's a strong word. I don't know if we would agree with it, honestly. Does God hate the wicked? No. It's out of love that he stirs them up to repentance. But it's interesting that a Lamanite seems to have a little more permission to use that word regarding his own people. Even if it's hyperbole, to kind of shock and awe this rhetorical jolt, God loves your people. He hates mine. And really what he's getting at is covenant relationships. He has chosen you because you've always chosen him, but you're not doing that anymore. But my people are starting to. Even before there was a split between Nephites and Lamanites, way back in 1 Nephi 17, Nephi says that the Lord esteemeth all flesh as one, but the righteous are favored of him. His love is equal, but his blessings cannot be. There are conditions of repentance after all. This seems to be more just in the covenant or out of the covenant. That's the love or hate. But he softens it then in verse four, that their evil is because of the iniquity of the tradition of their fathers. It's more nurture than nature here. But behold, salvation hath come unto them. And how? Through the preaching of the Nephites. For this intent hath the Lord prolonged their days. He just kept waiting until we came to a day where we would repent. And how did it come? thanks to you. Thank Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni, Thank a bunch of Nephites that were kind enough, compassionate enough, open-minded enough to come to a bunch of bloodthirsty Lamanites with enough faith in the power of the gospel and enough faith that down deep within us even, we would lay hold of the word of God. My ancestors did. In fact, we don't even have to look back that far. Look back to your own Nephi and Lehi that went and baptized hundreds in one instance and thousands in another of Lamanites. We owe you, we thank you. And here am I trying to return the favor. Talk about a role reversal. It's always been Nephites coming to cry repentance to Lamanites. Well, here I am doing the same in reverse. Now, starting in verse 5 and going through most of the rest of this chapter, he's going to start describing his own people. Paul talks about converted Gentiles provoking the Israelites, the Jews, the chosen people to jealousy, like, whoa, whoa, their righteousness is exceeding our own. I can't handle that. Can't let the rookies outpace the veterans. We're God's chosen people. I guess we better start acting like it. I think there's something beautiful about that, provoking people to live up to their privileges. So I don't read this as Samuel being boastful about, well, my people are better than yours, but almost apologetic, like, do you see the good that you did in our lives by crying repentance? Well, let the echo come back and sound in your own ears. Verse five, I would that you should behold that the more part of them, the majority of the Lamanites are in the path of their duty They do walk circumspectly before God. They observe to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, according to the law of Moses. Verse 6. Yea, I say unto you that the more part of them are doing this, and they are striving with unwearied diligence. Nephi would like that word, right? Unwearyingness. That they may bring the remainder of their brethren to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, there are many who do add to their numbers daily. You see, not content just to accept the gospel themselves. This more part, this Lamanite majority, aren't content with majority. They want every single one. And so they're doing all they can to convert the rest of their people. Verse seven and eight is one of my favorite passages because it describes these Lamanite converts. But start at the end and work your way back. Verse eight, it says, you know of yourselves they are firm and steadfast in the faith and in the thing wherewith they have been made free. That last phrase is beautiful too. The thing wherewith they've been made free. Well, that thing is the redemption of Jesus Christ, his atonement, his grace, and they're firm in it. They're steadfast in it. These anti-Nephi Lehi's, these other Lamanite converts, they never fall away. Well, how do we get to that point? I wish I would have understood it better as a missionary. I hope that we can all come to better understand it now because there are far too many people who come into the gospel but do not remain firm and steadfast in their faith. Same is true of lifelong members as we see many of them shaking in their faith. Well, if verse eight describes what kind of person this firm, steadfast member might be, how do we get there? Let's see if we can reverse engineer it. That's what I love about seven and eight. 7 leads up to verse 8. Well, if we start with 8 and then slowly work our way backwards, we can reverse engineer this kind of solid saint. Unmovable, unshakable. Well, how do we do it? Go back one step. 8 started with, as many as have come to this are firm and steadfast. Well, what's this? End of verse 7, a change of heart. That's what happens. No wonder there's not this this pull, this this fear of falling back into old ways, because that old person is gone, dead and buried. That's what Paul was getting at with baptism by immersion. The old man has been buried with Christ, so that you are brought back up in newness of life. I'm not worried of going back to who I used to be. They're six feet under. I've had a change. Isn't that what Alma was all about back in Alma chapter 5? Have you received his image in your countenance, family resemblance? Have you been born of him, new family, rebirth? Have you experienced this mighty change of heart? That's what King Benjamin was after. His people respond to his great message. Our hearts have been changed. We have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. When you're a different person, of course you're going to be firm and steadfast. Well, the question then comes how do I bring about that mighty change of heart? Well, let's reverse engineer. One more phrase backwards, faith on the Lord and repentance. And it's that faith and repentance that bringeth a change of heart unto them. Ah, so that's the next step or the preliminary step, I should say. What brings about a change of heart? Faith and repentance. Well, what do you think Samuel's been talking about for two and a half chapters? you've got to repent of your sins. And here's these signs with the intent that you might believe in Christ is coming. So it's my faith and repentance that brings a change of heart. And it's that changed heart that cements my testimony, my faith, and makes it firm and steadfast. Well, what leads me to faith and repentance? Back one more step. And what does he say? They are led to believe the holy scriptures, yea, the prophecies of the holy prophets, which are written. It's that which leadeth them to faith on the Lord and repentance. And it's that which then brings them to the change of heart. And it's that which then makes them firm and steadfast. So how does this whole thing begin? We're brought to the knowledge of the truth. And that truth is found in the scriptures and in the words, the prophecies. Exactly what Samuel is doing right there of the holy prophets. In the beginning was the word, John says that's how it always begins. That's why I'm so passionate about teaching Scripture. This is where it always begins. The power will begin to flow into your life the moment you begin a serious study of the Book of Mormon, President Benson promised. And I see it every time I begin teaching a class on Scripture. Power starts to flow. When our faith is rooted in God's Word, ancient and modern, holy scriptures and holy prophets. That holiness ties them both into the ultimate source, which is God himself, it's his word. It's the knowledge of the truth, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the word. Start with him as found in his words. Let that word convince you, reassure you that faith is founded properly and that repentance has glorious conditions. Prophesy of these things. I know what faith and repentance lead to. It's a guarantee. They lead to forgiveness. They lead to wholeness. They lead to happiness. That's its nature. And as I act on that, as the word convinces me to exercise my faith and exercise faith unto repentance, I start to feel a change within me. I become more and more like Christ, image in countenance, born of him, mighty change of heart. And with that, what could possibly pull me away from him? Firm, steadfast, immovable, unshaken. That's the kind of saint we need to become. And it all starts with the word. Again, my hat is off to each of you for spending your time in God's word, if we are reverse engineering a latter-day contingent of anti-Nephi-Lehi's, we're starting the process as we speak. Well, verse 9, he continues to describe these great converts. I hope these phrases refer to us as well. You know that they have buried their weapons of war. Who needs them? I'm changed. That's the old me. It's not just the weapons I buried. I buried my old self. They fear to take them up, lest by any means they should sin. Yea, ye can see that they fear to sin. For behold, they will suffer themselves, that they be trodden down and slain by their enemies. They will not lift their swords against them. And this, because of their faith in Christ. Beautiful connection between fear and faith. Fear in a good way. Fear to sin. All through faith in Christ. Verse 10. Now because of their steadfastness when they do believe in that thing which they do believe. For because of their firmness, when they are once enlightened, behold, the Lord shall bless them and prolong their days, notwithstanding their iniquity. A change of heart doesn't mean that we're perfect. It just means that we're firm and steadfast. It doesn't mean that we'll never have to repent again. We talked about that phrase, faith unto repentance, but more frequently we see the phrase, baptized unto repentance. It's, I recognize my iniquity, but notwithstanding it, I'm going to be firm in the truth that has enlightened me, firm in my faith in the forgiveness that comes through the Savior. With that in mind, verse 11, the promise comes, even if they dwindle in unbelief, the Lord will prolong their days until the time shall come, which has been spoken of by our fathers, Zenos, many others concerning the restoration of our brethren, the Lamanites, again to the knowledge of the truth. This is the gathering of Israel. Nephite version, the gathering in of Lamanites into the fold of God. Verse 12, I say unto you that in the latter times, the promises of the Lord have been extended to our brethren, the Lamanites. Isn't that what the title page of the Book of Mormon says? That this book will come forth to the Lamanites to convince them that they are not cast off forever, to remind them of the covenants of the Lord and the great things that God has done for their fathers you're in, you're still part of us. God reaching across the centuries to help them home. And notwithstanding the many afflictions which they shall have, notwithstanding they shall be driven to and fro upon the face of the earth and hunted and smitten and scattered abroad, having no place for refuge, the Lord shall be merciful unto them. That language is reminiscent of the scattering of Israel, not just the scattering of the Lamanites. This is bringing Israel home. 13, this is according to the prophecy that they shall again be brought to the true knowledge, which is the knowledge of their Redeemer and their great and true shepherd, and be numbered among his sheep, even these sheep who have strayed for so long. He's not giving up on them. Tragically, what's happening here is that God is not leaving the ninety and nine to go out in search of the one lost Lamanite. The ninety and nine have left him. Nephites, who... Not only we're supposed to be good sheep, but we're supposed to be good shepherds, have abandoned the flock entirely. And the Lord is turning his attention to gathering scattered Lamanites, scattered Israel. The first have put themselves last now, and the last are being put first by God. Verse 14, another, except ye repent, it shall be better for them than for you, unless repentance equalizes things because as he ends this chapter, 15 through 17, he who sins against the greater light will receive the greater condemnation. That sums up those last three or four verses perfectly. It actually reminds me of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, and this was gutsy of him. It's gutsy of Samuel to talk this way. He started kind of speaking their language. God loves you. He hates us. But by the end of the chapter, the roles have reversed. God is being merciful to us Lamanites, giving us this chance, prolonging our days. He's being just to you Nephites because he's given you every evidence, every chance, and you've rejected it. You are sinning against greater light and you will receive greater condemnation. Remember, that was his first big prophecy. Give it 400 years and you're gone. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. To the Jews, if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom it would have remained until this day. Sodom, that city synonymous with wickedness. Oh, no, no, they would have repented if they'd seen the things you've seen. We see that example with the Lamanites. If they'd been blessed with everything the Nephites had, it'd be a different history in the Book of Mormon. Or how this example from the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, this one's intense. Jesus is preaching in his own home synagogue in Nazareth. This is the same place where he talks about this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am the Messiah, in other words. The way that story ends is them taking him to the cliff outside town, ready to shove him off. And most people, at least in my experience, have always interpreted that like, whoa, that was blasphemy that he had just been guilty of. He claimed to be the Messiah, and they couldn't stand for that, so now they're going to kill him. But there's something that happens in the interim when he first basically announces his messiahship, they don't know what to make of it. But they're not up in arms yet. That only happens after this occurs. Jesus says, you know, I know you're shocked. You don't believe me. No man is prophet in his own country. And then he gives an example. He says, you know, there were a lot of widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but he didn't go to the Israelites. He blessed the widow of Zarephath a foreigner up north. And you know, example number two, there were a lot of lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, Elijah's successor. But who did he heal? Not an Israelite leper, a Syrian one. Naaman the Syrian was healed. Now those are fighting words to an ethnocentric, holier-than-thou chosen people. And that can refer to the Jews of Jesus's day, to the Nephites of Samuel's day, to certain Latter-day Saints in our own day. How dare you lower us beneath the level of our inferiors? How dare you put an outsider on a pedestal? I don't care about the widow of Zarephath or Naaman. I certainly don't care about you Lamanite. How dare you? This would be the equivalent of Jesus coming to general conference and only applauding the righteousness of non-members of the church. No wonder the Jews wanted to throw Jesus headlong off the cliff. It wasn't his blasphemy. It was his openness to outsiders. It was flipping xenophobia or ethnocentrism or personal pride on its head. It was saying that the first will be last and the last will be first. And that's what Samuel the Lamanite is saying too there's actually an interesting phrase that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle because it doesn't appear very often in scripture. But there are several verses that refer to the times of the Gentiles or the days of the Gentiles being fulfilled. There's also talk about the Lamanites blossoming as the rose. And those two kind of obscure phrases need to come together here. You see, the Lamanites blossoming in the days of Samuel comes at the expense largely of the Nephites. If the Lamanites are blossoming, it's because the Nephites are withering. And so the gospel is largely being taken from the Nephites and being given to the Lamanites. Well, in reality, the Nephites are rejecting the gospel, right? While the Lamanites are accepting it. And like I've said multiple times through these lessons, the Book of Mormon is the scale model of the last days. So the Lamanites blossoming as the rose here, Coincides with the Lamanites blossoming as the rose in our day, or what the scriptures sometimes call the day of the Gentiles being fulfilled. You see, the gospel was first given to the Jews, it then went to the Gentiles, and eventually, someday, it will return from the Gentiles back to the Jews. First shall be last, last shall be first. And that's one of the great signs of the last days, that the day of the Gentiles is being fulfilled. They had their time, they accepted the gospel, but now it's going back to the Jews and they'll be restored. They'll be gathered in, gathering of Israel. So much of the growth of early Christianity was because of the Gentiles coming in. And that's been true of church history as well. The church spreading rapidly in the 19th century in places like Europe and Scandinavia. But are we starting to see the day of the Gentiles be fulfilled Are we starting to see the center of gravity in global Christianity start to head south? The fact that Catholicism is led by a pope from South America instead of from Europe is intriguing to me. The fact that the growth of the church seems to be Southern Hemisphere, Africa, South America. It's amazing to watch this. Now, again, I don't want to get too specific into Israelite, non-Israelite tribes and things, Gentiles, Jews. All of this comes together and eventually it truly will be day of the Gentiles fulfilled because the house of Israel itself is returning to the fold. This is all really the last shall be first and the first shall be last like we keep repeating. But listen to some of these verses that contain the phrase from other scripture. Luke chapter 21 verses 23 to 28. Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. That ringing a bell from Samuel's prophecy? For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. There's the scattering of Israel. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Again, sound like Samuel. And upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You see all those elements coming together in that passage? so much of what we see in the multiple prophecies of Samuel the Lamanite, coming together with this idea of the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. In this case, the times of the Nephites being fulfilled. Thank you for bringing us the gospel, but now the last are becoming first because God is gathering us home. Romans 11 is the same chapter that I hinted at earlier when it talks about the Gentiles provoking the Jews to jealousy. But in that same chapter, now verse 25, Paul speaks of blindness in part happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That same phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles. The whole chapter, Romans 11, is about grafting the Gentiles into the tree of Israel. It's Paul's version of the allegory of the olive tree. It's an amazing chapter. Talks about branches being broken off the Jews, so that the Gentile branches can be grafted in, but also talks about those scattered branches being gathered again as well. Or how about this example, now from Restoration Scripture, section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This I have told you concerning Jerusalem, and when that day shall come, shall a remnant be scattered among all nations, but they shall be gathered again, but they shall remain until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There's that phrase. In that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars. Signs of the times, right? The whole earth shall be in commotion and men's hearts shall fail them. That ties it into the Luke passage we just saw. They shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. We'll start to see that next time in the beginning of 3rd Nephi. The love of men shall wax cold, iniquity shall abound. And when the times of the Gentiles is come in, A light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. And in that generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. By the way, I couldn't help but continue reading that passage in section 45 because it seems so relevant to our current situation. There shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. Now I'm not an alarmist, and I definitely understand that prophecies have multiple fulfillments. I'm not prepared to pull out my pen and check off that verse just because of the pandemic that's going on currently. Otherwise I'm sure people could have done that back in 1918 with the flu epidemic that happened then. What I'm more interested in is how to navigate those kinds of periods, since we're in one currently. And the next verse answers that. My disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. Talk about needing to become firm and steadfast, right? Talk about needing to become unshakable and immovable. We do that by standing in holy places. And that's all happening amidst this chaos and commotion, amidst these scourges and sicknesses, amidst these wars and rumors of wars, these signs in heaven and in earth amidst the times like the end of the book of Helaman, when the Lamanites are blossoming as the rose, when the days of the Gentiles are being fulfilled, and the gospel is ready to head back to its original possessors, the gathering of Israel that we are participating in on both sides of the veil. It's amazing that although these passages might seem so obscure to us, because they seem so infrequent. Do we recognize that when the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith in 1823, and began quoting all kinds of scripture to describe Joseph's mission and the time period he was ushering in? Among other things, this is Joseph Smith history, verse 41. Moroni stated that the fullness of the Gentiles was soon to come in. Wow. That phrase was not foreign to Joseph, nor to Moroni. These are the days we are living in and preparing for. Even if we just went to the hymn book and opened up to the very first hymn, written by Parley P. Pratt, someone with an eye to the fulfillment of prophecy. The third verse, the Gentile fullness now comes in, and Israel's blessings are at hand. Lo, Judah's remnant, cleansed from sin, shall in their promised Canaan stand. The gathering of Israel coincides with the fullness of the Gentiles. The blossoming of the Lamanites coincides with the eclipsing of the Nephites. And all of this in preparation for the coming of Christ. It's incredible the days that we're living in and getting to participate in. I love the Book of Mormon. It it is so miraculously relevant. Incredibly prophetic. Well, Samuel's sermon is over, but his story is not. Chapter 16 begins, it came to pass that there were many who heard the words of Samuel the Lamanite, which he spake upon the walls of the city. And as many as believed on his words, went forth and sought for Nephi. Interesting tag team here. One will plant the seeds and the other will reap the harvest. When they had come forth and found him, what did they do? they confessed unto him their sins. They better have gotten that message from Samuel. He said the word often enough, right? These are the conditions of repentance. And except ye repent, the sword of justice will fall. So they come running to Nephi, confess their sins. They deny not, they desire that they might be baptized unto the Lord, which includes baptized unto repentance. But that wasn't all of them. Verse two, as many as there were who did not believe in the words of Samuel were angry with him. They cast stones at him upon the wall. They shot arrows, many of them, at him as he stood upon the wall. Again, that's another theme we saw from the very beginning of these chapters. Cast him out, and yet he returns. Shut the doors, well, he'll climb on the wall. Mock him for being a Lamanite, well, he'll own it and put it right back at them. Cast stones, shoot arrows, and what happens? You cannot silence a prophet. The spirit of the Lord was with him insomuch that they could not hit him with their stones, neither with their arrows. You see, he had hit his target. He got the heart. He pricked it. It cut them. The wicked took the truth to be hard. Bullseye on Samuel's part. But in retaliation, they counterattack and yet can't hit him at all. God will vindicate the prophets the prophets cannot be silenced. Now, as a result of that, verse three, when they saw that they could not hit him, there were many more who did believe on his words, insomuch that they went away unto Nephi to be baptized. We saw this last time with kind of these different concentric circles of belief. Some who believed Nephi, then those five who ran in search of the sign, proof that he'd been right about the murder of the chief judge, then those who believed on their words in prison, some who believe when they finally saw for themselves, some who refused to believe even when the evidence was staring them in the face. Same thing here. These ones believe because of a little more proof. And this whole time, verse four, Nephi has been baptizing, prophesying, preaching, crying repentance unto the people, showing signs and wonders, working miracles among the people that they might know that the Christ must shortly come. You see chapter 16, verse four, In one verse, shows that Nephi was doing everything that Samuel was doing in the three chapters that preceded prophesying, crying repentance, signs and wonders. It's all there. I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God that gives the increase, Paul says. But the sad truth is verse six. But the more part of them did not believe in the words of Samuel. They didn't believe what he said, so they weren't part of that first round of belief. They wouldn't believe even when miraculously he could not be harmed by their arrows. In fact, they push back against that. And in verse 6, they cry unto their captains. They say, take this fellow, bind him, for behold, he hath a devil. And because of the power of the devil which is in him, we cannot hit him with our stones and our arrows. So take him, bind him, away with him. And yet in verse 7, as soon as they come forth to lay hands on Samuel, he casts himself down from the wall and flees out of their lands, even to his own country. And what's he do once he gets there? He just keeps preaching and prophesying among his own people. That was his original intention after being cast out the first time. I'm so grateful the Lord had him turn around and give another chance because now we get his message in those three great chapters we just studied. This part of the story in chapter 16 is so powerfully illustrated by that famous painting by Arnold Freeberg. But I've always wondered about the height of the wall. Because if he cast himself down from the wall, it must have been like one of those one of those Batman descents, right? Then again, if the wall was short, short enough that a jump from it isn't going to land in two broken legs, then that would have made it all the more miraculous that they couldn't hit him with their stones and arrows. He's right there, like I don't know, eight ten foot wall, big deal. Either way, high wall or low wall, there was a miracle that day, spared their stones and arrows. And spared from his leap down to the ground. however, it happened. I love the lesson that the Lord is teaching us, that He does have his servants back. But like we discussed earlier, it's up to us to decide whether we'll believe that in advance, or if we'll be one dispensation behind as well. Well, the sad news for them, and for us, because I'd love to keep learning from this great Lamanite prophet. Verse 8, behold, he was never heard of more among the Nephites. It's the last we get of him. Now, what happens in the aftermath of his ministry then? Verse 10, the more part of the people remain in their pride and wickedness, because they were firm and steadfast too, but in the wrong way. Meanwhile, the lesser part is walking circumspectly before God. Some time passes, and in verse 12, the people begin to be more hardened in iniquity, They do more and more of that which was contrary to the commandments of God. It's only getting worse. They rejected light and truth, and thus they continued the downward spiral. Verse 13, though, there were great signs given unto the people and wonders. The words of the prophets began to be fulfilled. Again, we get this five-year microcosm of what happens over the centuries. Verse 14, angels appear unto men, wise men. Hmm. Sounding like the nativity scene is starting to be assembled. They did declare unto them glad tidings of great joy. Now we've really been tipped off that it's Christmas time approaching. Thus in this year, the scriptures began to be fulfilled. Nevertheless, in verse 15, the people began to harden their hearts, all save it were the most believing part of them. The light is growing brighter and brighter, but people are sinning against that light. And what do these hard-hearted people start saying? Look at the end of 15 and 16. They began to depend upon their own strength and upon their own wisdom. There's the pride cycle again, right? We don't need God. It was all us to begin with. No wonder our prosperity leads us to pride and therefore destruction because we've abandoned God who was the source of that strength to begin with. Verse 16, some things they may have guessed right among so many. I mean, you throw out enough prophecies. I mean, that's what Samuel was doing for three solid chapters. Surely at least something is going to prove correct even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? But behold, we know that all these great and marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. It's fascinating to watch people just chalk things up to, oh, lucky guess. It's like sometimes people want to attack Joseph Smith saying, well, this prophecy didn't come to pass, so he must be a false prophet. I go, well, what about the prophecies that did come to pass? There's plenty of those as well. This isn't just good guessing." But they also do this in 17 and 18, they began to reason and to contend among themselves saying that it is not reasonable that such a being as a Christ shall come. Now, I'm a fan of reason, but not of reason alone. God speaks to the mind, yes, there is reason, but also to the heart, there is spirit, there is feeling. Beware of those that want to pull the pendulum only to the side of the enlightenment. History itself refused that, because there was a romantic period that followed after the Enlightenment, when Western civilization itself said, all head, no heart, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not having anything to do with that. So be careful about those that simply want to say, well, it's not reasonable that this would happen. Well, granted, there's a lot of things like the resurrection, like the atonement, that pure reason cannot hold. That doesn't make them irrational, though, It makes them beyond reason alone. They then say this in verse 18 If so, and he be the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, like they've been saying, why will he not show himself unto us as well as unto them who shall be at Jerusalem? Again, 19. Why won't he show himself in this land as well as in the land of Jerusalem? See, how convenient of them to come up with a prophecy that we cannot prove because it's going to happen somewhere else. Verse 20, that's what they're explaining. We know that this is a wicked tradition which has been handed down unto us by our fathers to cause us that we should believe in some great and marvelous thing which should come to pass, but not among us, but in a land which is far distant, a land which we know not. Therefore, they can keep us in ignorance for we cannot witness with our own eyes that they are true. Well, two things to say about that. Number one, why do you think all these signs that Samuel has prophesied of? Why do you think the destruction has to be such that the kings of the isles of the sea will be wrought upon to exclaim that the God of nature suffers? You won't be there to see the birth or the crucifixion, but you will be there to see the day, night, day with no darkness, or the three days of darkness with no light. If verification is what you're after, that's what the signs are providing. You just have to trust the prophet, go figure, that what you are seeing in those signs is evidence of what he has prophesied them to be. But then again, the second element here, he came among them. And more importantly, prophets preceding this day said that he would. That's a whole nother level of prophecy. If these non-believers had just read their scriptures, they wouldn't have made this argument because the scriptures promised them centuries before, he'll come among us too this will be verifiable. They're not trying to keep us in ignorance. Way back in 1 Nephi 12, when Nephi has the vision of Book of Mormon history unfolding, he sees destruction and darkness. And then he sees the heavens open and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven. And he came down and showed himself unto them, them, the Nephites. He came here too. Near the end of 2 Nephi, again he prophesies, after Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you, my children, and my beloved brethren. He says, the son of righteousness shall appear unto them, and he shall heal them, and they shall have peace with him. Now, just in case we shrug those off, saying, well, those were on the small plates of Nephi. And, and if he even surprised Mormon when he found them, then how on earth would these people have those records? They couldn't possibly have known that Jesus was intending to come among them as well. Well, fine. Let's go to Alma 1620, when Alma and Amulek are preaching throughout all the land, wanting to make sure everybody hears this, and many of the people did inquire concerning the place where the Son of God should come. Maybe they were wondering the same kind of thing. Some skeptical disbelievers in their period as well. Well, convenient. He's going to go somewhere else. How are we going to know about it? And so what did Alma and Amulek do? They taught them that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. And this the people did here with great joy and gladness. Wow, he's going to come here too. Sad to realize the things that we miss or the ignorance we impose upon ourselves when we don't study the word of God? The answers were already there. But then they say this, and I'm fascinated by verse 21. I love this. As a teacher, it kind of haunts me, especially as a teacher of God's word. These skeptics say, and they will by the cunning and mysterious arts of the evil one, work some great mystery which we cannot understand, which will keep us down to be servants to their words and also servants unto them, for we depend upon them to teach us the word. And thus they will keep us in ignorance if we will yield ourselves unto them all the days of our lives. Now in their context, it's this sense of, oh, they're going to try to pull off some, I don't know, wonder working to convince us that they need to be trusted. Now these signs and wonders are just shock and awe to try to reel us in, to become gullible. And then they'll start teaching things that only they understand. There actually was a certain reality to this through much of Christian history when God's word was in a language that the people did not understand. You want to understand God's word? Come to me because I'm the only one that can read Latin. Or even post-Reformation, there was a certain level of erudition. You have to have a degree from some divinity school. Now, I worry to even say that since I went to a divinity school too. But there's a certain, well, I can only trust somebody who's paid the price to be able to understand these mysteries. And so who am I to read scripture directly? And so when the clergy has a monopoly on the word of God, and people really do depend upon them for the word, with ignorance being the only other alternative, then they kind of do become servants to their words. But here's where it becomes a little more personal to me and to gospel teachers or leaders or parents, the danger of making other people depend on them to teach them. Now, again, I want to be careful with what I'm saying because I do teach the gospel, and I love to. And I love studying scripture and trying to help people understand it. I pray, I literally pray, really, even over these lessons and these videos in hopes that God can teach people reach people, help and lift people through them. It's my biggest hope. It's my only desire with this. But I do fear, and I've always feared this since I started teaching seminary 20 plus years ago. I don't want to make people become dependent upon me or any other teacher. Like I can only understand scripture with their help. I mean, we're here to help. That's what teachers are for. But part of it is to not just teach things that we know, rather to train you to find things that God wants to teach you directly, to eliminate the middle men and middle women so that no one has to be servant to someone else's word. Some of my favorite comments that I've been reading that many of you have posted describe the excitement that you are feeling in your own scripture study, independent of these lessons. Some of you are saying things like, you're helping me understand how to study, how to find principles in every verse, how to take apart passages and put them together again, how to look at words, punctuation marks, and see that there are lessons worth discovering behind practically everyone. You see, whether as a teacher or as a parent, I don't want to spend my life just catching fish and distributing them. I don't want anyone to be Dependent upon me to teach them the word. I want you to know how to fish for yourself. I hope that you're getting that. If this is just a model of scripture study and not just a distribution of gospel principles I've amassed over the years. Well, with that, let's wrap up this chapter. Verse 22 Many more things did the people imagine up in their hearts which were foolish and vain. So interesting. They're the ones that are saying, oh, there's no reason on your side. It's not reasonable to believe those things. And yet they're the ones imagining stuff that is foolish and vain. They were much disturbed for Satan did stir them up to do iniquity continually. Yea, he did go about spreading rumors and contentions upon all the face of the land that he might harden the hearts of the people against that which was good and against that which should come. That's his only hope. By saying it's not reasonable, he's attacking the head, but his real target seems to be the heart, which he's trying to harden. How does he do it? He does it through contention, strong feelings, anger, disputation. He's doing it through rumors, which again, seem head-based, but so often they're, they're triggering heart feelings. Speaking of rumors, there's that great phrase in Joseph Smith history, where Joseph Smith says that rumor with her thousand tongues was all the time employed in circulating falsehoods about my father's family and about myself. If I were to relate a thousandth part of them, it would fill up volumes. There actually are some volumes filled with rumors about Joseph Smith and his family. I've actually read some of them. I find them very unconvincing but studying rhetorically, I can see how they would harden certain hearts or abuse certain minds, since that's another phrase that Joseph Smith uses earlier in Joseph Smith history. He's writing this to disabuse the public mind. It's not reasonable, so close off your mind. Rumors and contentions, so harden your heart. Close off the two body parts that God is trying to access through the gift of revelation no thinking and feeling with God. And finally, verse 23, notwithstanding the signs and the wonders which were wrought among the people of the Lord. And remember, what are those signs and wonders for? For the intent that you may believe. So there's no cause for unbelief. Well, in spite of all that, in spite of the many miracles which they did, Satan did get great hold upon the hearts of the people, upon all the face of the land. That's always what he's after. We saw that way back in Alma 12. That those with a softened heart will receive the greater portion of God's word until they know it in full, and those with a hardened heart will receive the lesser portion until they know nothing concerning God's mysteries. Brothers and sisters, it's only a few years away. Turn one page. It's the next chapter, next week, third Nephi chapter one. And Samuel's signs are being fulfilled. It will get to a point where disbelief is impossible. But don't wait that long. Choose early to exercise faith when faith is still an option. Granted, where faith is an option, so is doubt. But that's what places the choice before you. Isn't that what he said earlier? Back at the end of chapter 14? You're free. He's made you free. He's given you knowledge. You get to choose, good or evil, life or death, faith or doubt. Choose wisely, brothers and sisters. We have everything we need to exercise that faith. We have God's word, which will found our faith and spur our repentance. Those things will change our hearts, and that will make us firm and steadfast immovable, prepared to receive the Lord when he comes. I testify that he will. And I look forward to that day and pray the world will be prepared for his coming.